0: Okay, well, first, thank you for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel, the events coordinator. Um, As you know, all our events are free and open to the public. Can everybody hear okay? Are we doing okay? Great. Um, So uh, before we get going, just a word about parking. We have free parking for all bookstore events in the parking lot in front of the bookstore, south lot, in the parking lot behind Rasmussen Hall, and the parking lot next to the Wells Fargo Sports Center. So you do not have to pay for parking. If you uh, paid and get a ticket by mistake, you just contact me, Rachel, here at the bookstore. That shouldn't happen. And if you paid, thank you, but next time you don't have to pay. I can't reimburse you. We have some light refreshments at the table. There's some coffee, tea, and cookies. You're welcome to take whatever is there. The bookstore closes at 7 o'clock. We must be out of the front doors by 7, so please keep that in mind. Um, We'll have time for a discussion um, after um, the presentation okay this event is being recorded and it will be on iTunes okay tomorrow in the UA campus bookstore collection so you can go to the iTunes store and you can put, put in Aaron Hicks it'll be there or um, um, I'm trying to or you can put in the title of the event um, Aaron Hicks presents active galactic nuclei it should also um, pop up or you can go to the bookstore website and see the podcast there the link for the podcast there okay our event. Um, Dr. Erin Hicks presents Supermassive Black Holes in Active Galactic Nuclei. Dr. Erin Hicks is an assistant professor in the UAA Physics and Astronomy Department and director of UAA Planetarium and Visualization Theater. Dr. Hicks's research focuses on galaxy evolution and the role that supermassive black holes play in shaping galaxies into what we see today. Key to explaining the significance of supermassive black holes is understanding active galactic nuclei, galaxies in which a black hole is actively consuming the surrounding gas and dust. Through studying these galaxies, Dr. Hicks aims to solve the mystery of how the evolution of a black hole and its galaxies are intertwined. Um, At this event, Dr. Hicks will discuss her current understanding of the importance of supermassive black holes in the evolution of galaxies and will highlight our changing view of black holes thanks to the work of Dr. Stephen Hawking. Uh, this event is held in honor of Do- uh, Stephen Hawking's 75th birthday. Okay, um, again, uh, thank you for coming. There will be time for a discussion, so I'll hold your questions. And um, now I would welcome Erin Hicks. Thank you.
1: So I was very excited that our bookstore was going to honor Stephen in this way. And I'm excited to be able to share with you the kind of research that we have going on in um, our, our department at our university and highlight um, some of what, especially what our, our students are doing as well. So I'll just give you guys a quick background of what, what I've done prior to my arriving here. So I arrived here in fall of 2013, so this is my fourth and in my fourth year here now. So, prior to coming here, I got my PhD at UCLA. And then I went on to do research in what we call a postdoctoral position um, for three years at a Max Planck Institute near Munich, Germany. And then I had a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington doing research there. And so, each way along my various career steps, I've, I've, I've had collaborators that I've stuck with throughout. So, I come to UAA. With a great number of collaborators from the United States, as well as from from Germany and really throughout Europe and many other continents and the and our and our on our planet, and so uh, there's a lot of resources around the planet that that you may not think somebody in Alaska has access to, but indeed through these collaborations and through the big science that we have going on now, the way that science is being driven in our in our scientific community is that these big, huge science collaborations allow people anywhere on the planet um, to be able to take part in that science. So it's been a a great time to be involved in astronomy. So I'll start out with showing you this. It's a real picture of a galaxy in the background. And then what you see in the corner there is an artist's impression of what we think might be happening in the middle of these active galactic nuclei. So what's shown in the background is what we call a spiral galaxy. So it's it's a gravitationally-bound system of stars and gas and dust. Turns out black holes and dark matter and all this other crazy stuff, too, that we don't have a full handle on what it is. But we, we, we thought we had a pretty good understanding of what a galaxy is, how it forms, how it evolves. There's a lot of stars and gas and dust. And in this case, it's a spiral galaxy. There are galaxies that look different than this. Um, but at the very center, In a few percent of galaxies, we find something else happening. We see activity in those galaxies that we don't see in the normal galaxy. And so this is an artist's impression of what we think might be happening, is material funneling down towards the center. And then in some cases, we see these jets being produced. And so when we look at these galaxies, we see a tremendous amount of light coming from the very center. And I mean the very, very center. We can't even see in enough detail to to say where that light is coming from but we know it's coming from a region that we don't have the technology to see down to and that light can can outshine the combined light of all the stars in the galaxy so it's something tremendously energetic occurring on extremely small scales and our understanding is what's happening there is there's a black hole sitting there and it's there's material falling into that black hole now I'll define what a black hole is in a minute but to The simple explanation is it's something that light can't get out of. Once it goes in, it doesn't come out. And the very idea that you can see a black hole is, that's not a statement one could say truthfully. You can't see the black hole itself, but you can see the material being heated up on its way into the black hole. So prior to its falling into this big black hole, this big hole in space time, it will be heated up to very high temperatures and produce so much light that it can outshine all the stars in the galaxy. And so that's kind of the process you see illustrated in this artist's impressions of of what might be happening in the center of these active galaxies. And some fraction of that material doesn't make it into the black hole in some cases and gets spewed out in these huge jets. So when we look out at the universe, this is a picture of the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. So take a grain of sand, hold it out at arm's length, put it in a blank patch of the sky, and point your telescope there, in this case the Hubble Space Telescope, for many, many days, so I think it was about 11 days worth of of data taken. And this is what we see in that that patch of sky. And you see there are thousands of galaxies here. Every pinpoint of light that you see, with a few exceptions, is a galaxy. So there is a system out there that has hundreds of billions of stars in it, gas and dust. And some fraction of those, a small fraction of them, maybe 5% or so, have this active galactic nucleus as well. And in fact, if we look really closely, we can see there's just a little bit of activity happening in some of them as well. Depending on how sensitive our instruments are, we can detect that activity happening in maybe 10% of galaxies. But nonetheless, it's a small fraction of them. Most of them are just normal galaxies. Some fraction of them, depending on how closely we look, we can see some extra bit of activity happening near the center. But to understand those galaxies, we have to back up a bit and let me explain um, our understanding of what gravity is. And so I can give a proper description to what a black hole is. So just backing up to, to what how we describe gravity in terms of Einstein's general relativity. So we think of gravity as something that holds things together, a force between two objects, say the moon goes around, the earth because of gravity. But there's another way to, to envision that, that Einstein gave to us through general the description of the universe... Um, through the theory of general relativity. And this is to envision the universe as the space-time continuum. So three dimensions of space and fourth dimension being time. Now what you see here is a two-dimensional representation of that. So this is not um, a real representation of that, but you can, we can, it's easier to illustrate in two dimensions initially at least. So you see this grid that's representing the space-time continuum. And you see Earth sitting here, and you see the Moon sitting here. Now, the Earth is making a big hole, or a big dent, rather, in the space-time continuum. Think of the trampoline, and you put a bowling ball in the center. And then we've got the Moon, much less massive, so its little dent in the space-time continuum is not so significant. And so as it's it's traveling through space-time, it's going to go in a straight path, but if that space-time continuum is curved, that straight path is not a straight path like we would think. So envision putting that bowling ball in the middle of the trampoline. You want to take a, a marble, roll it from one side of the trampoline to the next, to the other side. That marble is not going to just go in a straight line. It's going to follow the curvature of that trampoline due to the bowling ball sagging that trampoline down. And that's what's happening. That's our, our, a way in which we can describe and understand gravity. Is it's warping the space-time continuum. And so the moon would go in a straight path, but because the space-time continuum is warped, due to the Earth's mass, the Moon would go in an orbit around the, moon, the Earth. So black holes, well, at one point I wanted to make at this this stage is keep in mind that what I just showed you, the analogy of the trampoline, is a two-dimensional construct of something that's actually happening in three, if you take time, four dimensions. So this is a slightly better way to view this and that you see Earth here and you see the warping of the space-time continuum in three dimensions. It's hard to visualize, but just keep that in the back of your mind that what we're, we're seeing as two dimensions as a picture that makes more sense to us. It's actually something happening in three spatial dimensions. And so a black hole is the same idea, except for it's basically punching a hole in the space-time continuum. So we see this hole, instead of just a dip from the mass of the Earth, it's a really big dip, such that we can, you can describe it almost as a hole in the space-time continuum. So the reason that this is is that if we can talk about escape velocity, we know that if we throw something on Earth, it's going to fall to the ground. Gravity's going to pull it downward. If you throw something hard enough, it's going to go a little bit further. It's obviously an exaggerated um, depiction of this, but it gets the point across. If you throw it harder and harder, you're going to get further and further. If you throw it hard enough, you're going to orbit around the Earth. If you throw it hard enough, you reach what we call the escape velocity. You can escape the gravitational pull of Earth and head off into, into the solar system. And of course, we do this with rockets. We calculate what, what velocity, what thrust does this rocket need to be able to reach our destination? And so if we're trying to actually escape Earth rather than to go into orbit, we're basically, if you, again, envision the space-time continuum and the, and the dip or warping of the space-time continuum because of the mass of Earth, you have to determine what velocity do you need to climb out of this hole here, climb out of the gravitational well created in space-time continuum from the mass of the Earth. And so to get off to Mars, for example, we would need to launch our rockets with enough speed to climb out of this hole and then head off to Mars. But there's a cosmic speed limit. There's a speed beyond which we believe we can't go. So you can't just have an infinite escape velocity. You're stopped at what we call the the speed of light. It's the speed at which light can travel. We don't think anything can go faster than this. So about 300,000 kilometers per second is the the speed that light travels and nothing else can go faster. And so the definition of a black hole is that the escape velocity exceeds that limit, meaning nothing can go fast enough to escape and climb out of that hole that the black hole's made in the space-time continuum. So you can see Again, the depiction of the space-time continuum is this huge hole, and there's this point at which, if you boil it down to this simple graphic here, there's a point at which the escape velocity reaches, matches the speed of light. If you go any closer to that black hole, you're going to have to go faster than the speed of light, which by definition we believe you can't do, so you're trapped. And the black hole, if you can keep getting closer and closer, we believe that at least the classical description of a black hole is that Every, all that material is collapsed down to a singularity. So a lot of mass and is smushed down to an infinitely small point in space. That's the, the hole in the space-time continuum. So this would be what we call the event horizon, which is the point at which escape velocity exceeds the speed of light. And so we believe objects that look like this in terms of describing gravity and the space-time continuum are out there. This is an example of an active galactic nucleus, one of the closest to Earth, Um, it's called Centaurus A. You can see this beautiful galaxy here. We believe the black hole sitting in the center is actively consuming material. We see this tremendous amount of energy coming from the very central region of material being heated up prior to going into that, crossing that event horizon. And we also see, in this case, these big jets here. So we see these active galaxies out there. And again, what we think is happening is just that material is slowly making its way down to the black hole, and then some fraction of it is coming out in these jets. So we have a description of what these active galaxies are. And so for a long time, up till about 20 years ago, we thought these were the oddball galaxies. These ones, for some reason, have a black hole sitting in the center, And this is the end result, material falls into it and we see all of this energy occurring. Then we looked at our own galaxy and asked the question, what's going on in the center of our galaxy? Telescopes were built big enough for us to be able to track the individual stars in the center of our galaxy. And that's what you see here is a movie built from images taken at the telescope over the course of many years. And you're watching the motion of the stars in the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And if you watch this star in particular, You see it whips around really fast as it reaches its lowest part of the orbit in this image. So you see it whip around extremely fast. And if we model how those stars are moving, you can see this red curve here represents the star we were just watching. And so we can see how are these stars moving. And it's just the laws of gravity that describe how those stars are moving. Therefore, we can figure out how much mass is inside the orbit of that star. And we've watched this star complete its entire orbit. So we have a very, very good constraint on how much mass must sit inside the center of that, that the orbit of that star. And what it told us is that there is something extremely massive sitting there that we can't see. We have no idea, we had no idea it was there, and yet the motion of these stars is telling us that there's something that's about four million times more massive than our sun sitting there that we can't see. And the only theory that can explain that kind of density of, of mass is a black hole. And so we suddenly realize our own galaxy has a black hole. There's no activity going on there. We don't see this active galactic nucleus, despite the fact that there's a black hole sitting there. And in fact, we did this exercise looking at how the stars are moving in the center of galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. And we found there's black holes sitting in virtually all of them, potentially all of them. And so we can make this the only um, plot that I'll prob- I think I put up tonight. You can see the galaxy mass versus the black hole mass. The conclusion was after we look at, you know, one, we're surprised that there are black holes sitting in the center of these galaxies with no activity going on. And then the bigger surprise was that the bigger the galaxy, the bigger the black hole. Now that might not seem like such a surprise, but when we plot it, we find that the correlation between the two parameters is extremely high, such that we can't model how the black hole and the galaxy are tied to each other in that to that extreme level. So we can see a really small galaxy here. It has a black hole that's a million times the mass of our sun. It would take a million of our suns to have the equivalent mass. that's sitting inside this small galaxy here. Then we have this huge galaxy known as Messier 87, and it has a black hole that's a billion times more massive than our sun. It's a bigger galaxy, but the correlation here with all these different galaxies, our galaxy sits about right here, our galaxy known as the Milky Way, and it tells us that the black hole and the galaxy are evolving together to such a degree that we thought we had models that explained how galaxies formed. They didn't even contain black holes sitting at the center. And now we suddenly have to explain how galaxies can form and have the black hole and the galaxy be linked and how big they are. You'd think there'd be more variation if it was just natural, um, if they were not at all communicating with each other. So just to give you a better feel for what this, this means, if we take a galaxy a, a typical spiral galaxy, it's about 100,000 light years across, meaning if I stood on one side of that galaxy and turned on my really bright flashlight, it would take 100,000 years for light to travel to the other side. So you know, remember, light is the fastest we can travel. Now this little region here I showed you at the center of our galaxy, where we were tracking the motion of the stars, is only about 30 light years across, meaning that flashlight would only take, that light would only take 30 years to get across. So the black hole can only influence the motion of objects on about that scale. And yet the black hole is somehow influencing how the rest of the galaxy looks as well. Once you get outside of this region here, there's so much star there's so many stars, there's so much gas, dust that the mass out there is far more dominating than that little black hole sitting in the center. And so the black hole should have no idea what's going on in the rest of the galaxy, and the rest of the galaxy should have no idea what mass black hole is sitting in the center of it. It's like saying there's some force that's dictating how we're all moving in this room here, and yet we're also, that force somehow, is dictating how things are moving out in Girdwood. That communication, we don't know how it can happen between these scales and these scales here. So there's something critical to galaxy formation and evolution that black some role that black holes play that we are missing the link of. And so one approach to studying this, and really our best bet at trying to understand what the significance of these black holes, is to understand how they grow. And one very obvious way in which you can grow a black hole is to have two galaxies colliding. So you see this is a simulation of two galaxies colliding. Let's assume they both have a black hole sitting in the center of them. They go through this dance, of gravity pulling them together. They'll swing by each other and get ripped apart so the stars, the gas, and the dust get on disrupted orbits. You see this bridge of material here and this big arc of material being thrown out. Now as time progresses, they'll come back together and eventually they'll become one galaxy. And their black holes that sit at the center of each of them individually now will eventually become one. And so this is one very obvious way that you can, you can build a black hole. In addition to the two black holes merging, you're disrupting the orbits of a ton of, of gas in these galaxies. It's just going to fall down the gravitational well towards that black hole. It's just going to sink towards the center. And so in addition to the two black holes merging, you have a bunch of material feeding into those black holes as well. And so you have... And at this stage, an active galactic nucleus, where there's a black hole consuming material, and it's very, very bright in the central region. And so we think, from this scenario, you would expect that you would look out there and you'd see, okay, there is an active galaxy. It's it's currently consuming, the black hole's growing. It's consuming material. That it should sit in a mess of a galaxy, somehow indicating that it's undergoing or recently undergone some merger. And so we we did that. surveyed the sky looked at active galaxies what kind of galaxies do they live in turns out they don't live in active or in in messy merging galaxies like this some of them do in fact some of the brightest of them do but most of the black hole growth meaning most of the galaxies that have activity in their center of material dumping down in the black hole sit in galaxies that look pretty much like the galaxy we live in so we're missing something that explains how that black hole growth is occurring. So I'll just show you some real, since that was a simulation of a galaxy simu- a galaxy merger, real observations of galaxies merging. So you see two galaxies getting close to each other. You can see this one is, is slightly disrupted. Here is a more advanced merger. You can see that the big arc material here, the bridge between the two nuclei, and here's a more advanced yet merger, where you can see kind of the remnants, what remains of the two galaxies that use the progenitors, but it will eventually become one galaxy. And so we can see examples of this, but again, when we look out there and f- look at the active galaxies, look back in time, we say, where are those black, kind of galaxies do those black holes sit in when they're actively growing? We see them in something more like this, where there isn't any suggestion that a merger is occurring. So there's something else fueling these these black holes to consume the material, to grow and grow. And so even though we know how to dump a bunch of material down to a black hole and grow it through the merging process of smashing two galaxies together, we can almost explain how you you can build today's galaxies through that process, build today's black holes through that process, but that's a minor fraction of the black hole growth that we see. It must be occurring through some other process in in a spiral galaxy that looks like this. So to try to explain this, I and and many other collaborators have made an effort to look at these normal looking galaxies that have activity going on in the center. And so we've surveyed um, quite a few galaxies and our goal is to look very, very near to the black hole and to track how the stars and the gas are moving. And to do that, we, we rely on some of the best telescopes we have today. So at the top, you see um, the Keck Observatory, the two 10-meter uh, class telescopes so that the mirror has a 10-meter diameter. And then we've also been using the Very Large Telescope um, from European Southern Observatory, which is down in Chile. So you see these four 8-meter telescopes. And then we also take advantage of The Hubble Space Telescope, which may only have a 2.4-meter mirror on it, but it's above the atmosphere, so there's a significant advantage. The Earth's atmosphere, if you've ever looked at the stars or you've looked down on the city, you see all that twinkling occurring. That's the, the air in our atmosphere bending the light. That does not make for a very accurate scientific image to have your light shifting around. And so to get above the atmosphere is great help. Of course, one would love to have that 10-meter mirror up above our atmosphere to gather more light, but um, we'll get there. One way we can get away, get away with building big telescopes on the ground is to use what we call adaptive optics, which will compensate pretty well for the Earth's atmosphere. So you see here's the very large telescope with a laser pointing up to the sky. Here's an example of the Kep Observatory. In this case, both telescopes working in tandem. They each have a laser pointed up towards the center of our galaxy in this case. And so these lasers will go up to the sky, and we use this as a tool to measure how the atmosphere is moving. And knowing that allows us to then compensate for it and correct our images, almost as well as if we were in space. There are limitations to this technology.
2: How long
1: have you had the lasers there? Ah, for... Well, I think they came online around 2006. 2005-2006. Two thousand and five, two thousand and six. So, I'm um, on the Keck Observatory. I'm not sure about VLT; was about the same time, give or take a year. And so, we we can compensate for the Earth's atmosphere, um, but not at all wavelengths. So, there are some kinds of light we would want to take a picture of that we cannot use this technology yet, and we are limited to having to go to space to be able to gather that data. And so, using this technology, we can we can trace the motion of the gas in the stars very near to the black hole and try to answer the question of how and why is the material dumping into the black hole. Why is the black hole growing in that galaxy and not in this galaxy? Why is our galaxy not have a black hole that's actively growing, but this other one does? And if this other one has a black hole growing, how is that process linked to the rest of the galaxy changing? Because we know if that black hole gets bigger, then the rest of the galaxy has to change as well. Its shape has to change. How much mass it has in different components of the galaxy has to change to be able to stick to this correlation we've seen where the black hole is is evolving in tandem with the the rest of the galaxy. So you can't change one without changing the other. It's a bit of a chicken-and-egg problem. We don't know if the galaxy is influencing the black hole or the black hole is influencing the galaxy. And so by tracking the motion of the stars and the gas near to the black hole, we can try to answer the question of why is this black hole growing and then see what's happening in that galaxy that might make it unique compared to those that do not have a black hole growing, leading hopefully to clues that will indicate what the links are between the black hole growth and the growth of the rest of the galaxy. So here's one such example. It takes a bit of explaining But we're looking at this galaxy here. It's a spiral galaxy. It's known as NGC, which is Next Generation Catalog. 3227, we have so many objects up there in the sky, most of them are identified with some sort of form of combination of letters and numbers. And this is one of them, one that that I've been working with for a great number of years now. Um, It's actually in my thesis work for this galaxy. So we we push and push and push, and we seem to get more questions than we, we do answers each time we get a little further. But what you see here are maps, maps of the motion of the stars and the motion of the gas. And so what the red color indicates is motion away from you and the blue is motion towards you. And so if you envision this disc here, this side of the disc coming towards you and then this side going away from you. And you can see that reflected in the motion of the stars here. So they're going around in some sort of disc around the black hole. And you can see the green color in this case represents Um, kind of the zero lines, the zero line of the motion, with respect to, to us. And you can see it's rather straight in the stars. Stars are hard to push around. They like to be in stable orbits. But gas, you can shove around a lot easier with various forces that might be occurring. And you see in the case of the gas here that the green line is not mirrored by the same thing you see happening in the stars. If I put that same line there, there's a distinct kink and the green, the zero line here, suggesting that the gas is doing something more than just rotating around in a stable disk around the black hole. And in fact, what it tells us is that there is inflow of the material towards the black hole. So we can see that that gas is actively making its way towards the black hole. Now we're looking at the very center of the galaxy here. We're looking at the material that is influenced by the gravity of the black hole. Yet the scales that we're able to reach, even with a a telescope that has a diameter smear of 10 meters, we still are nowhere near that. what we call the accretion disk, the material that's been heated up to extremely high temperatures that we see when we talk about the active galactic nucleus. That is still on much, much smaller scales than we're able to currently reach. But this is the, the stuff that's making its way in that direction. And so we see the material actively flowing inward, and we can say, okay, if this galaxy is, is bringing material down to the black hole through some sort, sort of what we call a bar structure driving material downward, and so that what we call loss of angular momentum due to non-circular motion, something not moving in a circular orbit around the center of the galaxy, is resulting in material being pushed down towards or being pulled down towards the center.
2: What's the scale on that, up here you have five kiloparsecs and down there it's what, in the, in the graph?
1: So this number here, so this is, it's parsecs, so plus or minus 300 parsecs. Um, so a parsec, um, you can think of it as a, as a light year, it's a difference of about a factor of three. Okay. And so this is still, it's a region, the very central region is, is dominated by the gravitational influence of the black hole. But we're kind of on the edge of that.
2: So it's six hundred uh, parsecs or something across. Is what you're. Yes,
1: yes. So we've got six hundred parsecs across here. And of course, we see this motion. It's not enough to just say we see gas driving inward. We want to be able to characterize it. We want to quantify what is it that we actually see. And modeling is our only way to be able to do that. So we can model how this gas is behaving. We know what the stars are doing. That tells us what that pole in space-time continuum looks like. tells us the shape of that warping of the space-time continuum. And we know the gas, under no other influence um, other than the shape of that gravitational well, should just be orbiting around as well. There's something more happening. There's something disrupting its happy orbit around the center of the galaxy, and it's being pulled downwards towards the black hole. And so we, we can model this. You see this kink in the green line of the model. Pretty well matches what we see in the observations. And so we can, we can characterize how much material is actually flowing down towards the black hole. In this case, we get about 0.05 up to maybe 1 times the mass of the sun per year. There's not a lot of material dumping in towards that black hole. But even having a mass equivalent to our sun dumping into the black hole each year would be enough to have it be as bright as what this we see from this object in the central region. It would, that would put that galaxy as being classified as an active galaxy. So our galaxy has very, very little material coming in towards it, if anything at some points. Um, for our galaxy, the Milky Way would be not classified as an active galaxy. We see other things as well. And we the more galaxies we look at, the more extremely complex cases we see. So we see material dumping inwards, we also see material flowing outwards. And to disentangle all of this in the very central region can be very challenging. And this is another case where here's a Hubble Space Telescope object or sorry image of NGC 5643. And just looking at the very central region, you see this picture here. And now what you can Just make out what this picture is representing is where the dust is, which means where the gas is. Dust and gas cohabitate together. And so you can see these dark lanes. That's telling you where the dust and the gas are sitting. So we can see there is some sort of spiral structure there. Whenever we see those beautiful spiral arms, that implies material being driven down towards the center. We also see that same signature in many of our other maps. So what you see here is a distribution of the light of the gas, we see that there's brighter regions along these, these spiral arms, implying there's more gas sitting there. So the gas is sitting along those spiral arms and it's being pulled down towards the center. We also see signatures suggestive of inflow of this material based on the motion of the gas. So not only can we take a picture and say where it's sitting, but now we can actually measure the motion of this gas. And this is something that's just been made available in the last 10 years or so. And so we see these the green and and blue and yellow patches here tell us that there's motion moving along the spiral arms. We can track that gas flowing inwards. But in this case, as we see in many cases, there's not just inflow. We also see outflow. You see this very bright region here. All we could do with Hubble Space Telescope at first is just take a picture. We can say, well, we know there's a lot of dust in these dark regions. There's not a lot of dust there in the white region. But now, with of um, being able to take what we call spectroscopy, we can measure the motion of the gas in the stars, and we see signatures of this outflow. For example, look, here we see this very red patch. That tells us there is gas moving outward at a very high velocity. So we can verify that what we see in a picture with Hubble Space Telescope indeed is an outflow of material. So we see material flowing inward, and then we see a good chunk of it flying outward. So some, some energetic process occurring on very small scales is driving the material outward. So it's similar to these jets that we saw coming outward from the very central region. So although material is going in, we can also get material out. And so there has to be enough actually getting into the black hole to, to support this active galactic nucleus, but not all of the material going in is going to make it into the black hole. Question? Yep.
2: They're all kind of going counterclockwise. Did they ever go clockwise?
1: Yes. They do. Yeah, they could go. It's called trailing or leading arms. <coughs> Alright, so, as I mentioned, we can model the motions of things in galaxies to the best of our ability, taking all the physics that we understand, and this is, this is our best hope of understanding what we're seeing in these complex measurements. We're to the point where we can measure things well enough, you can't just look at the picture and describe what you see. We have to be able to model it and say, okay, in this model we know how material is moving, now, if we look at it from this point of view, or we look at it from this point of view, what are we going to see? Because you don't know a what point of view you have of that galaxy. And so looking at this simulation here, it represents a galaxy much like the ones you were just looking at. The color tells you um, the age of the stars, and also the kind of purple hue is, is the temperature of the gas. So you can see this kind of red structure here. You see this very bright disk in the center forming. There's a material flowing towards the center of the galaxy. So I can take this simulation, and I can look at it from any point of view, and I can treat it like I would data from the telescope. And I can use all my same tools that I use with the observational data and say, if I had a galaxy that looked like that, what would I see at the telescope? And it's extremely helpful in trying to disentangle what we're seeing in these data. We can also zoom it in to a very central region, where you can see that central disk forming around the black hole. And again, the black hole is in the very, very center. But we see materials definitely flowing towards the black hole. You can see that flowing as a result of the spiral arm structures we see. Now, we don't have the benefit of sitting around and watching the galaxy evolve. This takes millions, billions of years. But we can do that in a simulation to the best of our ability and try to emulate what we're seeing in nature. If we can match what we see in today's universe, we can match what we see and of galaxies that were much younger, then we can can feel reasonably confident that what we see in these galaxies, if we can match the observations we see, we can get a good description of what's happening in our data. So out of these simulations, we get that same blue and red color diagram that tells us how things are moving. And we can see, in this case, there was this structure that was funneling material down to the center of the galaxy. And you can see this distinct kink and the velocity field. So this distinct kink is similar to what I showed you in the first example. And so we can match that up with our observations and then characterize what we're actually seeing. And a lot of this work, I just wanted to highlight, this is an extremely collaborative effort. I've had a lot of students working with me. There are some students presenting work at the International Astronomical Union General Assembly back in August 2015. They've been to other meetings since. So a lot of this work is, is being done by, by students, they're they're working on what what is the gas doing, what are the stars doing in these galaxies. So I have a student working with simulations, I have a student working with the data from the Hubble Space Telescope. And so it's it's work that is accessible to students, but it's also work that um, on another level working with colleagues from many other countries around the world to, to gather, it's it's a very collaborative effort now in that we can't just take our observation to understand the system as a whole we have to understand things from many points of view. So we have to look at it at all different... We have to look at radio data. We have to look at data from Hubble Space Telescope. We have to look at ground-based data from Keck and from, from the very large telescopes in Chile. So it takes a combination of all of these data to understand the system properly. So it's a very collaborative effort. And I'll just highlight how Stephen Hawking has really changed our idea of what black holes are doing. So we know now... Black holes are critical to the evolution of galaxies. But our description of the black hole itself and how it may evolve, we really, in large part, owe to to Dr. Hawking. So this is a quote from some time ago that there's no escape from a black hole in the classical theory. So as I've described it up until this point, you go in the black hole, you can't get out. You can't go faster than the speed of light, so this is just not possible. But Stephen Hawking has put forth... theory some time ago now that perhaps you can so the quantum theory so quantum mechanics is this is the description of things on the extremely small scale so we're taking gravity which is the description of the biggest scales we have in the universe and it needs to be uh, consistent with our description of things on extremely small scales and so um, quantum theory enables energy to actually energy and information to actually come out of that black hole. So, so it's a process we call Hawking radiation. And in the normal universe around us all every day, we have this process going on, so in scenario number one, where we have a particle and an antiparticle instantaneously are created, and then they come together again, and they annihilate. So this process just is a natural thing that happens around us. If this happens you know, every day, space, is, this is inconsequential. But what happens if it happens right next to an event horizon, that point in space where, if you cross it, you're going to have to have a speed faster than the speed of light in order to escape? If that happens, if one of the two particles, one escapes and one crosses that line, then you've got one of the pair trapped inside the black hole and the other one got out. Suddenly, the universe has a new particle in it, has new mass present. Essentially you can't you can't do that. So essentially it's material that's that's being taken away from the black hole and this through this process you can actually Instead of building up a black hole you can build it. You can have it evaporate You can have Hawking radiation taking material out of the black hole simply because of the natural consequence of quantum mechanics the quantum theory tells us that these particles and antiparticles are spontaneously being produced and annihilated but if it happens near that event horizon, you're going to lose one of the particles into the black hole, and one's going to come out. Therefore, mass has been put back into the universe, and the black hole's lost a little bit. So that black hole will get less and less massive. And so this is what we call Hawking radiation. But then we, we hit a problem known as the firewall problem. So quantum theory actually dictates that the event horizon... Is a highly energetic region. It's not this benign region as, as I just put forward. It's this highly energetic region that, but it, the description. So as we've learned more and more about how to describe the universe on the smallest levels, so based on quantum theory, it's told us that actually this event horizon should be this kind of firestorm of, of particles. But this is in great contradiction to Einstein's description of relativity. So this is the idea that the universe should follow the same rules no matter where you are. If you're on the other side of that event horizon, you shouldn't really know the difference because you should still be able to look around you and see the laws of physics to be the same. But quantum theory would suggest otherwise. It would suggest that there is this region beyond which you materials is extremely energetic And the laws of physics are not at all what you would see on the other side. So, recently, in the last couple years, Stephen Hawking put forward a fix to this problem. So, the idea greatly changes our idea that there is this distinct point in time that we call the event horizon, that if you cross it, you can't get back out. But instead of an event horizon, we have what we call an apparent horizon. And so, it fixes that quantum effects around the black hole cause the space-time continuum to fluctuate so wildly that it's not possible for such a sharp boundary to exist. And he terms this an apparent horizon because you can actually have material going inward, but it's never actually, it's going to keep going inward, it's never going to make it down to what we used to call a singularity. There may be no singularity. Material might be trapped on the other side of the event horizon temporarily, but in time it will come back out. So there's no loss. The information is highly garbled. You can't, you know, piece it back together easily once it's come back out of that black hole. But it does come back to the universe. So our our, our picture of what's happening on the very s- small scales close to that black hole have changed greatly just in the last. Um, few years because of trying to tackle this idea that eventually we have to face that our laws of gravity have to merge with our laws of how we describe the universe on the small scales. And bringing um, general relativity together with quantum theory has been extremely challenging and a feat we have yet to, to realize, um, but in, in our steps towards getting there, these are the kind of changes that are happening in our description of extreme environments, like an event horizon or an apparent horizon around a black hole. And Stephen Hawking has played a large, large part in our advancing that field forward. So what do we have to look forward to? Well, we have many new um, bits of technology on the way. We have the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be launched in October 2018. So we have plans underway. In fact, tells the first round of proposals to propose to use this telescope are due this summer, so we are very uh, much in the works of trying to, to get ourselves organized for this new, um, this new telescope. And it will be a huge advancement in that it's a much larger mirror than we've had in space before, and it observes at wavelengths that are not available to us on the ground. And so for the first time, There have been previous telescopes in space where we've been able to take pictures of this kind of light, so we'll be looking at colder gas, the gas that is actually the bulk of what fuels these active galactic nuclei. Well, the gas that we're looking at so far is just kind of the hotter gas. We assume it's tracing, going along with the colder gas, but we need to verify that. And so by looking at these same objects with the James Webb Space Telescope, we'll actually be able to say, what is that really cold gas doing? How is it getting down to the black hole, and how might that be linked with the galaxy on larger scales? Um, so we'll be we can look look forward to that um, in let's say spring of 2019. And then there's also the 30 meter class telescopes. There's the TMT, literally 30 meter telescope that will either be built um, on the top of Mauna Kea or perhaps in Chile. There's also an equivalent sure, well a similar telescope proposed by um, the Europeans and other groups that will also be based in in Chile. So this is a huge step forward in the size of telescope, which will be able to bring us down to scales looking much, much closer to the black hole. So we can say not only how is gas getting close to that black hole, but how is it getting almost all the way down to, to that region where we see the energy emanating from. And there's also, this is the very large telescopes in operation now but we can tie them together through what we call interferometry. So gather light at all four at the same time, and then we can combine that light to be able to see at much greater detail. And so um, an instrument called gravity will be able to look very close to our black hole in our galaxy, and we'll be able to test general relativity, Einstein's general relativity, in ways we have yet to be able to test. Those extreme environments just, they're not available on Earth, good for us, but not good for testing general relativity, um, so we'll be able to do some of those tests for the first time with that new instrumentation. I think I will leave the it there. Having to how take large questions.
2: is the uh, James Webb?
1: Good question. Um, I think it's eight meters across, approximately. And it's actually gold-plated, as you see, implied. It's, it's going to be an impressive instrument. It's actually going to sit. Much further away from Earth than the Hubble Space Telescope, so one drawback is we've got to get it right the first time. There's not gonna be a servicing mission because it needs to get much further away to get cooled down enough to be able to see that cold gas, which we could not see if it were close enough that if it were close to Earth. What launch vehicle? I don't know the answer to that, but I could easily look it up for you.
2: Not the Orion.
1: I don't think so, no. No, it's not the Orion. It's one SpaceX. of the no, it's actually going to be done. I think through um, well, NASA's involved, but I don't think it's one of theirs. I'll look it up at the end. I can easily get that information.
0: Yeah.
2: I thought I heard some years ago that there was a holdup on uh, with a 30-meter telescope on Mauna um, Kea yes. due to the natives not wanting it
1: there. And this is still very much an ongoing issue. Right? I think it's extremely important for people to you know respect each other's opinions and values. And a lot, I mean, I don't have the picture of Mauna Kea up now, but you can see there's a lot of telescopes up there right now. And I don't think that the communication that needed to happen between the two groups was done as well as it could have been done early on. And so this has led to a difficult situation now. And the 30-meter telescope may indeed, it might not be built at the top of Mauna Kea. It may be put elsewhere. But Mauna Kea is a superb site to put things um, for... On, to put telescopes at, because the sky is very, very still. There are other reasons. There's not a lot of water, and so on. So it is a great site. So there's we have to balance the values of the, the astronomy community and the, the indigenous people of Alaska, and and hopefully they will come to some agreement that both parties can be satisfied. But that has yet to be done.
2: A couple questions. Uh- you said that the black hole influences an area, uh, the supermassive black hole influences an area of about 30 light years?
1: A prog- it depends on the galaxy we we're the talking Oh, yes. Okay, so the question is, well, go ahead and finish what you have to say, and I'll, I'll address
2: Well, if by definition, uh, uh, light cannot escape, doesn't it, because of the escape velocity, doesn't that necessarily mean that Gravitons travel faster than light because they okay. escape over the 30 light years and the light doesn't.
1: Okay, so the question is, if a black hole is defined such that light cannot escape, how is it, basically how is it gravitationally influencing things beyond... Gra- Are there yeah, such so gravita- gravitons? So, I'm not a particle physicist, so I'm not going to, to delve Too deep into other gravitons. This is the the um, the for the the particle put forward in particle physics to describe the interaction between two objects gravitationally, Um, and so this would be the mediator that that for gravity. So those kinds of particles are not constrained by the same things, uh, same things as you know driving in a car or, or anything else in motion. So that would be a force meteor that would be able to travel not at the faster than the speed of light, but it would be able to travel such that it can influence things because that <laughs> mass is present and warping the space-time continuum. That warp in the space-time continuum, if we put it in the context of general relativity, that warp in the space-time continuum is as outside of that event horizon. It's not. The warp is not within the event horizon, so it would be a warping and where you see that, that that warp in the space-time continuum is dominated by the black hole would be the region for that the stars, gas, dust, whatever may be present, would be dominated by the black hole rather than the other stars and gas in the galaxy.
2: Part two of that question was, sure. since E equal MC squared contains a time function, what If you isolate for the time function, what do you get on the other side of that equation?
1: Oh goodness, I would need a whiteboard for that one. But (laughs) so the question is, if equal m c squared has a time function, what do you get on the other side of that equation? How much mass
2: do you get out of so much time? I don't
1: think I could properly answer that one. I don't think we can. Time doesn't yield mass. Um, If we have equals mc squared is the energy equals the mass times the speed of light. It's exchanged between energy and mass. It's not um, that you just have mass in the universe or just have energy. They can be exchanged back and forth. And so the amount of energy you get out of a quantity of mass, that mass times the speed of light will give you that amount of energy. You can put time into that, but I'm not going to, to say that you can produce mass just by time advancing. If you're fueling a black hole, we could talk about how big that black hole could could change in mass as a function of time, but it would depend on the inflow rate, which is exactly the kind of quantity we hope to get out of the modeling of the galaxies we're observing. I was curious if quantum entanglement is uh, in any way like a re- relevant model to trying to understand the correlation between the mass of a galaxy and the mass of its black uh, hole. So that's a good question. So does quantum entanglement? Help us understand this connection between the black hole and the rest of the galaxy. galaxy. Yes, yeah. so the, the evolution between a black hole and its galaxy, we have maybe some clues as to how and, and why that's occurring. None of them um, at this point in time are being explained, and we're not using quantum entanglement to try to explain that. But I think our understanding of black holes is changing so much in part because we're trying to understand quantum theory better and some theory that will allow us to understand quantum theory and and the merging of that with gravity could open the doors to insight that could very well explain a lot of things in our universe that we have as open questions so i'm not going to say no because i don't i can't say for sure that that's the case um but what we think is our best guess at this moment that what's happening Um, is that there's some interaction between, as the black hole is, it's either something happens on the galaxy at large scales that drives material downwards, and that process that that either triggers the material to go inward or the, the actual act of the material going inward causes the galaxy to change, and then the material gets in and the black hole grows to match that. Or... It might be the material goes in towards the black hole, causes those jets to come out, and the jets are the means to to interact with the larger the galaxy on much larger scales, and therefore changes the shape of the galaxy. Most likely, it's not just a black and white one or the other. There's some some mix of both interactions going on. But at the moment, none of our leading theories to try to tie the evolution of a galaxy and its black hole touch on quantum entanglement. But I'm not going to say no that in the future we might we can find that to be relevant. How
2: much, because it's an unknown, but when you start working with the dark energy and dark matter, how much do you expect that to disrupt whatever theories you're forming at this time, not having that part of the equation to work with?
1: Well, it's okay. So the question is, if we get a better understanding of dark matter and dark energy, how much might that change the theories we have describing how things are working in the context of galaxy evolution and the role black holes play. So, it's like dark matter we have a much better understanding of and yet it's still a very poor understanding. Dark energy we really don't know what that is. So to to bring that into our theories could greatly change our understanding of how the universe works not just on scales of galaxies but on even larger scales as well. And so we could very well find that we have to revamp everything once we understand something as fundamental as dark energy. Dark energy composes the, the vast majority of the mass energy budget of the universe, and yet we don't know what that is. So that leaves in question our description of how things work. That having been said, when we take dark matter without a proper description of what dark matter actually is, but we can describe how it reacts to things around it, so its interaction with matter... We can include that in our most complex models and and try to take a region of the universe and say, okay, there's a bunch of material, let all the forces of gravity, all the the way that dark matter interacts, and so on, then you put those into the equations, let the simulation run, and see what we get after we run it for a time roughly equivalent to the age of the universe. And we get remarkable matching in the distribution of material, the shapes of the galaxies, how many little galaxies versus big galaxies and how bright they are? So our simulations seem to be doing a good job in the formation of the, the largest structures in the universe, to even down to, to to our general properties of galaxies. And so it seems we're doing better than, we're, we're doing better and better in our understanding of how to integrate dark matter into our understanding of the universe. But dark energy we've got a long ways to go. And how that could influence the story I just put forward now, one can only really guess. But most certainly it has to has to change the picture. Yep.
2: So as volumes of matter are approaching a black hole, um, do we predict that they're retaining most of their molecular, molecular atomic structure, or do we, do we predict that they're creating supermassive elements, or breaking down to fundamental particles?
1: Good question. So, the question was, what happens with the material, what do we think is happening to the material as it goes towards the black hole, or do we have fundamental, do we have, you know, massive particles being built up, or do we have things being broken down to smaller, and we think it's the latter. We think that as the material is flowing in towards the black hole, usually what can be pulled towards the black hole initially the easiest is the cold gas. Because if it's hot, it has some other energy source acting on it, and it's harder to settle it down so that gravity can dictate its motion. So that cold gas is coming in, which has, which is usually molecular. So it's, it's a cold gas made of a lot of molecules. And as it gets closer and closer, it gets heated up. The molecules get broken down. And so we see that that gas is getting hotter and hotter, which would imply the electrons are being stripped off of those those atoms, and so we have things essentially breaking down to, to nuclei um, or to very ionized atoms in those environments. Um, as you get closer and closer to the event horizon or the apparent horizon, um, things might be a bit more extreme, and that, that description might not quite give it full justice, but we're definitely not building, there's no fusion reaction going on that's building up heavier elements, but it's definitely the other direction, that, that things are being, you know, electrons are being stripped away from the nuclei and so on. Any other questions?
2: Yeah. Is the supermassive black hole at the center of galaxies uh, uh, attracting WIMPs?
1: Are the supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies attracting WIMPs? No. I would say with reasonable confidence in that WIMPs are one theorized um, particle for dark matter, so weakly interacting massive particles, but they're weakly interacting. So it's not to say that a black hole would reject WIMPs if they were to come nearby, right? It's not, But they're not preferentially pulling in these weakly interacting massive particles because they're weakly interacting with the material around them. So as a galaxy is forming, you have this huge cloud of gas, and as gravity is pulling it together, the the WIMPs, or the dark matter, if they are indeed these WIMPs, will get down to a certain point where it's, it's heated enough that it can't collapse any further. Because it's dark matter, it's not producing light, so it can't emanate away, can't release the energy that it's collecting through the gravitational collapse, whereas gas... Can just simply release light, it can shine, and so that light being released allows it to get rid of some of that energy, and gravity can continue to collapse it down more. And so the, the dark matter we see in galaxies is on a much larger scale, and the galaxy basically sits inside this cocoon of dark matter. And if it is the weakly interacting massive particles, then that that description holds, that the weakly interacting massive particles would stay on these larger scales simply because they don't have a way to get rid of energy through the release of light to allow gravity to pull them in closer.
2: And they only are attracted to each other and nothing else?
1: No, they're still dictated by gravity. So if you had a bunch of, let's just say somehow, um, a bunch of dark matter over here, and you had a bunch of some other mass here, there would still be a gravitational force between the two. So gravity interacts with dark matter just as it does any other matter. Oh,
2: no, it doesn't.
1: Well, <laughs> it depends on what, what theory you want to take for dark matter. But yes, it, it it gravity pulls it together, and that's why we see galaxies sitting in these reservoirs of dark matter. But it can't pull it together indefinitely, because dark matter, by definition, is not releasing light, so it can't it can't get rid of that energy and allow gravity to pull it down indefinitely.
2: I assume with the larger Webb uh, you telescope, you're going to be able to see the ones galaxies that you're studying now better. Yes. Are you also looking forward to a larger pool of galaxies that you can
1: study? Absolutely. So there'll be two things that we'll take advantage of. Well, three really. One, we'll be able to see these galaxies. See gas that was previously unavailable for us to observe, but then we'll be able to see the galaxies that we've already observed in in greater detail. Um, The mirror size is not bigger than what we have on the ground. So at some wavelengths, it's it's almost comparable to what we can achieve from the ground, but at those wavelengths that we can't observe because our atmosphere does not allow that light through, we'll be able to see that for the first time and match it with what we've seen from the ground but we'll also be able to reach out to galaxies that are further away and be able to look at that same gas as well. So it will, it'll be a great advantage. The big advantage will be combining the strengths of the James Webb Space Telescope and looking at that cold gas with what we can then achieve with the next generation of ground-based telescopes with the 30-meter class mirrors and be able to look in that much more detail and say, okay, this is what we see from the ground, how does that match up with what we know is happening of that cold gas? We'll be able to trace it down to even smaller scales on the ground. So it's it's, it's really the strength of all of our different observatories, ground-based and space-based, that we have to pull together to, to build the whole picture. But definitely... Um, being able to see more galaxies, we're restrained to those that are nearby to us to be able to study right near the black hole. To be able to extend that out further will be a huge advantage. Our pool is rather small, as you say, at this point. Then to have more galaxies to study will, be, will get the statistics
0: we need. So um, when you say that the um, active galactic nuclei affects the galaxy, mm-hmm. it's, do they affect each other in some way?
1: Yes, yeah, so the question is, does the black hole in the galaxy, do they affect each other in some way? And yes, is, is the implication that we receive from the correlations of what the black hole looks like in terms of its mass and what the galaxy looks like. But how they're influencing each other is the, the part we don't have the story for yet. And so we know that if you change the black hole... We don't see galaxies in which the black hole is really massive and the galaxy is small, or the galaxy really big and the black hole is small. We don't see that happening. Every time we see a galaxy with a slightly more massive black hole, the galaxy is gonna to change to match that. And so we see that there is a very tight uh, parameter space in which a galaxy must be if its black hole is a specific mass. But we don't know which might be influencing one, and it might be a little bit of both. And so it might be that you, you the black hole starts growing and it throws out those jets and it stops the galaxy from forming any further and so you just have things kind of frozen at that point where you've got the black hole and the galaxy is stopped and then the fuel supply is cut off and the black hole stops as well. Or it could be the other way around where the galaxy will just dump down a certain amount of material and then, then it will stop growing and then it will cut off that fuel supply to the black hole and then it runs out of, it, stops growing and you have it there. So, But we don't know which comes first. And to be able to extend out to further distances and look at galaxies that are much younger and undergoing this process at a time when the universe was very young might help us understand that we should be able to say if these galaxies are really young, what grew what what happened first? Is the, are the black holes preferentially higher in mass when the universe was younger and therefore the galaxies had to catch up to them? Or do we see the opposite where the galaxies were already built and in place and the black holes are just small? and in time they will catch up and match what the galaxy is doing. And so those studies are very much ongoing, but we need to have this, the, the detailed pictures to be able to, to execute that kind of study. And that's been difficult, um, and it has been done, but it's difficult to do, and it will become easier and easier and more promising um, results as, as we get bigger telescopes. What? Any
0: other questions? What other? Well. So, how is this affecting us? How is this affecting <laughs> us? Yeah. I mean, you know. yeah,
1: it's not going to change the economy. It's not going <laughs> to change. <laughs> so, my question to that is usually if we want to understand how we came to be, then we have to understand how the universe came to be. So, we can't understand how planets formed before we understand how stars formed. We can't understand how stars formed before we understand how galaxies form. And we can't understand how galaxies formed and became what they are today without understanding the evolution of the universe on even larger scales. And we're totally dependent upon stars producing the material through the fusion process in their cores and then spewing that out into their galaxies. The universe started out as just hydrogen and helium. And we are not made of hydrogen and helium in part, but we're sitting on chairs that are not made out of hydrogen. And so all of that material, all of our bodies came from A previous generation of stars that produced that material died and blew it out in the universe. But that material needed to produce, to make planets, to make humans, to make chairs, it can only be spread out so far. You need some sort of mechanism to really spread it throughout the galaxy. And one way in which that can be done is through active galactic nuclei. Those huge jets just stir everything up in the galaxy. And so without them, some would say, we wouldn't be able to have the mixing of material that allows planets to form throughout the disk of the galaxy. We see planets forming around stars all over in our galaxy now. We think most stars, in fact, could very well have planets forming around them. That could not happen if there wasn't the material present for those planets to form, and life potentially there on the planets. So. Although a black hole sitting in the center of our galaxy is not directly impacting us at this point, it fits into that bigger picture of how did all of this come to be and trying to piece together the significance of, of all the different components. And although you can get very focused on one little component, um, you can't understand... That whole picture. What is dark matter? What is dark energy? Without taking all the pieces together, all the pieces of the puzzle, and putting them together to build that whole picture. So this is just one piece of those that that big puzzle. How galaxies formed, and what role black holes play in that.
2: The first that you see, uh, you showed uh, had a uh, uh, accretion rate of. Uh, up to one solar mass per year. Yes. But that's minuscule compared to what you might think a galaxy might accumulate.
1: Yes. So the, the point made is that the first galaxy I showed you, that we had observations of material flowing down towards the center of it. When we model our obs- how that gas is actually moving, what we get as the inflow rate, the amount of material going in, is up to maybe a mass equivalent to our sun, every year. Now this is enough to produce the energy that we see emanating from the very central region, but it indeed does seem like a very small amount. But when you have this happening over millions and millions of years, you can see that you can build up black holes to the masses that they are. In fact, we think that these active galactic nuclei, if there's a black hole sitting in the center of all galaxies, all of them at some point in the past have to have looked like those active galaxies that we see today. They had to have consumed material through that kind of phase to become what they are today. So although our galaxy is in an inactive galaxy today, the very fact that a black hole is sitting there that's four million times the mass of our sun means that there was a period of time over which material was flowing into that black hole. And so even at a solar mass or one times the mass of our sun per year, over the time period that that active phase may occur, and it doesn't happen continuously, it likely occurs in, in bits and spurts, so you could have this on and off of that that engine in the center, that material falling down, fall in for a bit, and then it would taper off, and then fall in for a bit more. Over the billions of the years of you know, the time, the 13.7 billion years that the universe has been around, these black holes have had enough time to build up to what we see today, assuming there was some seed black hole sitting there. Now that... We don't know yet. We don't know what started the black hole, but it's another very big question to ask. What what sent you
2: into this field?
1: Yeah, very good question. I was exposed to this field as an undergraduate, and I just really got excited about the science, and I went and did a summer program i in Florida, getting more exposure to the science, and I just continued on. I knew when I arrived to graduate school that I the, wanted to get into galaxy formation and evolution. I wanted to focus on black holes, and, and luckily I, I found somebody who was willing to support that science, and, and Matt Malkin at UCLA was very um, supportive in that he, he let me get data with the Keck telescope, and he was very good at guiding me through that, that field. And so that really, um, you know, it's a small community as far as science communities go. When I go to a conference, you know, there can be 80 of us sitting in the room, and it represents a, you know, a good fraction of the people doing this kind of science in the world, but it's a very um, energetic group, and so it kept me going in the field. And there's a lot of, as an undergraduate, I sat in the room with, you know, the biggest people arguing over whether there were black holes in all galaxies or not, and, and, and what, you know, you, I showed you that plot with the correlation of the black hole mass and the, the mass of the galaxy, exactly what is the slope of that line, but it was so energetic, energizing to, to listen to these people who were so enthusiastic about the science and the implications of it, and so it was just kind of a step-by-step process. It just kept getting better and better, so I just stayed in the field.
2: Any other questions? I'll do this all night. Okay. (laughs) believe we have to get out of here. It's 7 o'clock, anyway. So uh, the BTFR, is that a function of an exact WIMP to Baryon ratio, or is your correlation of supermassive black hole to mass of the galaxy uh, either-or situation, like Triangulum 3?
1: So it's definitely an either-or. I mean, in terms of is the galaxy influencing the black hole or the black hole influencing the galaxy, we don't know that.
2: No, I okay. meant so, moreover. Is, is the mass of the galaxy a function of a specific WIMP-to-Baryon ratio, or okay. is it either WIMPs or Baryons that make up the correlation?
1: I think this is... So the question is, how much is dark matter, if it's described by these, these WIMP particles, how much is dark matter influencing the galaxy? I think we're just starting to get a handle on that. I think that we're learning what kind of what we call dark matter halo, so that big um, envelope of dark matter that the galaxy sits inside of. We're just starting to get enough statistics and enough accurate... Understanding of what the dark matter distribution is to, to get a handle on how it might be correlated with what the galaxy looks like. But it looks like they're related. So we see galaxies that would sit in a particular kind of dark matter halo have particular kinds of properties. But to say which is influencing the other... Well, it's likely the dark matter that collapsed first because it's just so much more that gravity pulled together what was there and gravity, dark matter came along. And the baryonic matter, that the normal matter that we see when we look up in the sky, we see stars shining. That's all normal baryonic matter. That material just kind of followed along. Because if there wasn't dark matter there, gravity never would have been able to pull anything together. And so the baryonic matter followed along with that, that dark matter. But to say for sure, I, I don't think we have an answer to that conclusively.
2: What I was actually asking you was: Do you have examples where there uh, the correlation of the mass of the galaxy to the black uh, central mass of black hole is skewed one way or the other towards dark matter or baryonic matter?
1: No, we don't have that kind of measurement to be able to say one way or the other. So, I mean, we can say that the black hole is correlated with the galaxy properties, but there is not enough statistics to be able to say how that might relate to what the properties of the dark matter in a particular kind of galaxy would be. So, we don't see that it's skewed one way or another based on our understanding of dark matter. Any other questions? Sure.
2: Uh, uh, that have All the work, the
1: Not directly, but it was, it was. Okay. Nice in that we could say, oh yes, sorry. So the question is, did the first detection a couple of years ago of gravitational waves with the LIGO instrument? So they detected gravitational waves for the first time. This did not have a direct impact um, on the particular work that I do, but it gave you that peace of mind that a general relativity is, is still going strong, and that it's a prediction of general relativity. and they worked hard to get that detection, and it came at last. Um, And it's significant in that when you have two galaxies merging, for example, and you have their black holes coming down next to each other, you see that big burst of gravitational waves come out when one example is when two black holes merge. So in the case of that first detection, it was two small black holes that were not at the center of a galaxy, which we call supermassive black holes, but two two smaller black holes that are the end state of a very massive star. And so those or do a different kind of black hole, but the exact same thing happens when you have two galaxies merging, their black holes come together. That very end state of when they come together is a huge burst of gravitational waves. So we don't yet have the instrumentation to detect that kind of gravitational wave energy being emanated, but um, in time, we hope to get there, and that will give us a lot of clues as to the physics and the, the details behind what happens when two galaxies merge. So how much material, for example, might be able to dump down into that black hole in the process of merging? How fast does that merging process actually happen? And so it will change our idea of the most energetic active galactic nuclear, or at least influence our idea, um, in that those really, really most energetic active galactic nuclei are driven by the merger of two galaxies. So if you crash two galaxies together, a lot of gas and dust is gonna dump down towards the black holes that ultimately become one. And that process is will be influenced by future detections with LIGO and, and LISA, a similar um, instrument that will hopefully be put in space, will be able to detect other kinds of merging processes.
0: Just yeah. have, uh, uh, not sure. to get off topic, but do you find more women in studying uh, colleagues, more women colleagues, or is it still a uh, male-dominated... So the (laughs) question
1: is, is it still a male-dominated area in astronomy? Yes, yes, very much so. Uh But it's... um, I'd say astronomy is kind of unique in the sciences in that that's a very open topic. And it's, it's a topic that is discussed at all of the big meetings that we have. There's a lot of encouragement for people at early stages in the career to get involved in the field and be invested in it, not just women, but you know, underrepresented groups from, you know, any way you can look at it. And so there's a lot of support for those people. And I know there's, you know, there's all this discussion of, you know, discrimination against people. I actually personally, there there are horrible stories out there, but I feel very fortunate to say I have not been um, a victim of any significant discrimination, although it is very much a problem that... Underrepresented people in the sciences have difficulty. They're not made welcome in the field, and this is a significant loss to the talent pool that we have available in the field. And so, um, it's it's a challenge, but it's one that in astronomy and many other fields, and increasingly more and more in other fields, um, is a topic that's being addressed. So I, we're seeing some some change, not at the rate we need to see it to to have equal numbers, but Improvement is Uh people are making a big effort to improve the situation.
0: Are
2: there facilities in South
1: Africa? Are there facilities in South Africa? Yes, just recently, well, in the last you know five ten years, there's been a very nice um, telescope built there. And South Africa is actually investing a lot in astronomy. They have new institutes opening up. There are a lot of astronomers that have gone there. Um, to work at those institutes. So it is a growing and, and increasingly strengthening field um, or part of the astronomy community. So the SALT telescope, for example, opened up there. And so, although I have yet to have, to have the, the pleasure of visiting their facilities, I hope to in time. It is definitely a growing part of, of our community. How about Russia? Russia. Good question. I don't know of any major facilities in, in Russia. There are most certainly a great number of Russian astronomers that, that contribute to the field um, and, and have you know, there's a great history of, of advances in astronomy that come from Across that the Sorry?
2: Across the
1: arms. Not that I know of. So there's. So the, I didn't repeat the question, but the question is, is South America, um, is there a lot of astronomy going on there? Is in Russia a lot of... Strong again, that there are definitely, as the field advances, it's becoming so much more collaborative that it's, I think, it's a lot of ways easier to be a part of the community from a remote location. My various collaborations that I have made it possible, you know, for me to feel comfortable saying, okay, I'm going to go to Anchorage, I'm going to be one of two astronomers in the state, but this is possible because I have collaborators that are, are out there, you know, scattered around the planet, and no matter where we are, we continue this science forward, and so it's, it's easier, as long as you have you know, the support behind you, the university behind you, and you have um, collaborators
0: that you, that you can
1: work with, despite time zone differences, then you can advance
0: the field forward. And um, Would you like to say anything about the planetarium? Oh sure. So
1: I'll also mention that I'm director of the planetarium and visualization theater here at UAA. So it's a fantastic facility. We use it um, for all of our astronomy classes. They're in there every single day, and it's a very popular class. As you can imagine, to be able to sit in the planetarium and have a University science credits um, is a very nice way to go. So it's a lot of fun. But we also have public events. And so if you've never been to the, the planetarium, I actually brought some some schedules if you'd like to see what we have. We have Friday night public events. We have, if you happen to have been here last week and listened to Dr. Catherine Rollins give her talk on um, working with the Ice Cube Observatory, she's going to be doing a show this Friday. Um, so I would encourage you guys to take a look. We have uh, shows obviously on astronomy given it's a planetarium but also shows on topics over a wide range of fields so we have we have a show on neuro um, neuroscience you know so we get to tour through the brain you think of a planetarium as touring around the universe um, but you can also tour around the human brain we also have shows on geology biology many other subjects and we have you know that we have the show run for about 20 30 minutes and then there's an expert in the field that will do a show after often. For example, I do the Black Hole Show frequently, and so, um, you know, I would be there to talk with people about the state of the, the art of research on uh, black holes for those shows. So there's a lot of, of great opportunities to see people from the university and in our community that way.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Very much. Yes, thank you so much. you.